It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to the world Lost of the cash. Radio. I jumped the gun there. Hello, and welcome to New Business Paradigms, conscious commentary on business and society. I'm Matt Renner, the Executive Director of the World Business Academy, and I'm here with Ronaldo Brutico, the Academy's President and Founder. The World Business Academy is a nonprofit business think tank and action incubator dedicated to transforming the consciousness of business leaders, business students, and the public at large in order to inspire business to take responsibility for the whole of society. Today is a very important show. We do this show because Ronaldo and I both enjoy talking about politics and economics, but the main reason we do it is every month there's really important news to share with our listeners, uh, but this month tops, take, takes the cake. Uh, there, there are real issues at hand right now that are threatening the global economy. Uh, this is one of the shows that you should consider listening to very closely and potentially sharing with friends and uh, relatives who you think need to uh, have a heads up about what we're looking at. We're staring down the barrel of another economic crisis, and one that isn't being explained by the media. The global economy is at risk of another massive recession, and we're going to discuss both the possible triggers and some ways to avoid falling victim to potential instability. Uh, so, Ronaldo, let's start there. What, what are you seeing right now as potential triggers for another global recession? Uh, Matt, thanks for, for um, teeing that up, because um, as you know, I've become extraordinarily concerned about the global financial situation, and it's all pending. It's all hinged on one fact. The concern I have is if the Republicans in the United States gain control of the Senate, I personally believe that that would indicate the likely the, the, the likelihood of a massive recession, perhaps a depression. Why do I say this? Since I'm not a Democrat. I say this because it is clear that the pending highway trust bill, which could not get passed when the Republicans didn't control the Senate, is probably dead on arrival when it comes up for renewal in March. Uh, and that's going to be huge because it means no infrastructure spending. I think you're looking at the next debt ceiling crisis uh, as, a, as a likely target. I think you're looking at the likelihood of an impeachment of President Obama by the House. And even though they won't be able to convict in the Senate, that will have an enormously disruptive influence on the government. So what I'm seeing uh, really, Matt, is a, a complete lack of awareness by anybody. And I'm including the financial press in this. I mean, the, the, the electorate doesn't understand that it's about to dive off a cliff. The, the um, existing um, what's that? Excuse me, I had a little sneeze there. The existing political leadership doesn't seem to understand what's about to happen. Uh, the financial press is not alerting people to it. So I, I'm looking at it saying it, it is entirely likely that if the Republicans take control of the Senate, it is likely that we will have a massive correction. So let me, let me put that in economic terms. A 10 to 20% drop in the stock market and a 10 to 20% drop in the value of U.S. greenbacks. That's what I see as, as the likely outcome if the Republicans take the Senate. So what we're doing in the Academy Advised 
uh, fund that you know we do with First Affirmative is I've already brought all this information to George's attention, and I've asked for an emergency plan to be developed. And some of the components of that plan are I, w- I intend, if the Republicans take control of the Senate, I intend to sell every stock bond. that I don't own many bonds because I, I sold those five, six months ago. But every investment I have denominated in U.S. dollars, I'm going to sell them, and I'm going to put them into cash and put those cash into Swiss franc. I don't even want to own U.S. dollars at this point. And, and I'm going to sit like I did in 2008 when I made that same call. And I'm going to sit for you know three, six months and see what happens. If it turns out that they get a hold of their senses and they don't drive the government down, then I'll be more than happy to come back in the market and resume. All I would have lost is the use of my money for six months. If I'm right, I could preserve 10 to 20% of my total capital. And, of course, then I would come in later, buy in at the bottom of the market, and I'd make another 10 or 20% on the way back up, assuming there is a way back up, uh, and, and that the entire situation doesn't deteriorate into a global depression. Now, right. When I'm, and I'm looking, and this is very important, you've got to look at what's going on in other countries, too. So right now, Russia is extremely weak financially. But it's, it's not only gotten hit with the sanctions and it's cratering its economy, but the price of West uh, of uh, Brent oil, Brent's, the North Sea oil, is below $100 a barrel. It's down about $93, $94 a barrel, I think. Uh, at that level, Russia cannot support, doesn't get enough excess cash to support the welfare state that Putin created that gets him the popularity that he, that he wanted. So he's, he's got to invade savings for a while in order to get to that welfare state doesn't collapse on him. So he's going to have to do that because the excess petrodollars won't be there for him. So he's in a weakened condition, and Russia, which has been a growing, one of the brick-growing economies, won't be there to feed the global economy. The other brick countries, Brazil is already on the verge of recession, could easily fall into recession, and if anything goes wrong in the U.S., will fall into recession. Europe probably is in recession right now. It's doing a double dip right now and has two massive problems I'll come back to. One of them is that they still haven't solved their basic monetary versus fiscal dilemma, which is at the heart of the European Union, and they still haven't done anything to deal with the whole question of stimulus, which the German methodology clearly has proven it doesn't work. In fact, Paul Krugman had a great observation earlier, about October 2nd, he wrote a column in the New York Times, where you would think that when people continually find that their predictions are wrong, the prediction in this case he was referring to was that we've been hearing for, for four years now that the stimulus, the monetary stimulus of the Federal Reserve would increase inflation and we'd have this jump in bond prices, we'd have a jump in inflation. hasn't happened. And as recently as 2011, uh, uh, PIMCO, which is Bill Gross's firm, what was until this week, uh, PIMCO was betting on a high rate of inflation, even though the evidence was clear it's, it hasn't happened and it's not going to happen. And we can talk about why, but basically I see a low inflation scenario as far as I can see into the future, and I see a continuing uh, moderation of prices to the point where the bigger risk is deflation, not inflation. By the way, Bill Gross, as you know, the largest bond fund in the world, the one he started, PIMCO, he's now been terminated from. And the former chief financial advisor who actually correctly called their moves in 2008 has come on board. So that may be a good indication for Bill. The problem is the bond market's in deep trouble, and I don't see it getting better because of the fundamentals of what causes bonds to go up or down. So what I'm looking at right now is I'm looking at Europe, very weak, mild recession. Britain, eh, a little bit of strength, but it'll quickly dip once the U.S. dips. China, slowed growth, not recession, but very slow growth, so not enough to drive the rest of the world. 
Australia going sideways at best. Most of the big chunks in Latin America, including Brazil, going sideways or slightly down. And so all that's going forward right now is the U.S. economy and Canadian. But the U.S. economy is like this engine. And if the Republicans take control of the Senate, that engine will stop functioning, I'm concerned. And yeah, if let's it does talk to- stop functioning, okay. we're, we're going to have chaos. Yeah, I want to talk about that possibility, Ronaldo, because I think it's important to start there, which is essentially that trigger of the Republicans taking over the Senate and having control of both houses. Uh, we're hearing it's it's a, a tougher election than normal to call, I would say, because it is not a nationalized election, meaning that the issues in different Senate races are different across the country. Uh, but the best predictors out there, like 538.com, the famous uh, website of Nate Silver, who was with the New York Times um, and doing very advanced scientific polling, uh, he's giving the Republicans of a 56.5% chance of gaining control of the Senate versus the Democrats' 43.5% chance of maintaining control. And I think that that's important to point out that it's it's it, it's looking like the Republicans are ahead. It's not a sure thing. But if we're going to be prudent and talk about the potential outcomes ahead of time, I think now is the show to do it. Uh, so I think that aside from just the the fear of them taking control of the Senate, what does that mean on a policy level? What kind of things are they going to be doing in the Senate to actually sink the economy? Well, I'm going to respond to that, but I also want to throw one other thing, which is this incredible insanity where uh, uh, 18 states now, since the Supreme Court struck down the voter rights bill, 18 states have erected barriers to voting, which clearly are going to dramatically restrict Democratic voters at the polls in this election, dramatically. So all, in addition to all of Nate Silver's wisdom, and what, Nate's probably the best, you know, he's the best that there is at calling these races ahead of time, for him to put a 56% chance Republicans control the Senate, and you, and you add in, and I assume it's part of his, his equation, all these uh, voting restrictions that have been passed in all these different states, uh, it strikes me that um, we're probably looking at, and, and, and so, I mean, everybody that cares about their, their IRA or their bank account, I mean, needs to get everybody they know to the polls and see that, that, that a Republican takeover doesn't happen. However, <clears throat> if it does, the specific actions to your question that I think the Republicans would take, because the Republicans don't have control of their own party, I believe that the the the, the complete um, collapse that we've had in government, the ability to govern. By the way, interesting statistic. You know, we haven't had a recess this long before a midterm election since 1961. Hmm. I Meaning, we don't normally the politicians don't leave this. We we the no. president in effect declared a war, and the Congress didn't want to come back and even vote on it because they didn't yeah, want to have the papers on it. It's amazing. Okay, so what we consider un- inexcusable gridlock in Washington today, what we all would say is nuts. Uh, I saw a poll that of all the people who look watch politics, eight percent believe the Congress is doing the right thing. That's less than ten percent. Now, having said that. These elections, should the Republicans take control of the Senate, leaves the Republican Party, which is itself completely divided between Tea Party and non-Tea Party, in the dilemma that it can't go in either direction because it will be doing everything to look towards the next presidential election in 2016. So what will happen is not only will this gridlock get worse, and, 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 I, and for people who say it can't get worse, wait, I could, I, could, I could tick off ways it can get worse. But in addition to the gridlock getting worse – I anticipate there will be any number of bills passed that the president will veto. 
those yep. vetoes will give the Republicans their opportunity to then impeach him on some sham. At that point, you'll have a government under siege. And, you know, it's interesting. Obama, it was a great article that came out just the other day. Obama has already sort of been benched by his own team. Uh, you've never seen as many um, uh, kiss-and-tell novel uh, books come out on an administration while it was still in office that come out on him. And the common denominator of these kiss-and-tell books, so these are whether you're talking about people like uh, Panetta, former head of the CIA and the former chief, uh, uh, he was former chief of staff for, uh, for, for Obama. You see this guy, um, it, it, Robert Gates, clearly, Geithner, Hillary in a couple of passages, all have this common refrain. Basically, Obama has no fight for, no, no stomach for a fight. He simply will not go to his opponent, take the, take the battle to his opponents. So he's constantly doing defense, and he's constantly acting, as I say on this show, like the professor-in-chief, or the, but not like the chief executive. So the country right now is without leadership, and the, the swing to the Republicans is a direct result of that sense the public has that it couldn't get any worse, so why not elect more Republicans, not realizing that the reason it's so bad is because the Republican Congress is the do-nothing Congress. Now, they know that intuitively, but because Obama's not leading and because they, his own party basically said stay out of the election at this point because you're a liability, not an asset, you're looking at the worst kind of a lame duck session in November, and then you're looking at total chaos after January because I don't see how the Republican Party, with such a dominant number of people in it who are Tea Party people, I don't see how they come together on any policy they want to pass that would be even remotely acceptable to any Democrat. And the, and the president will end up having to veto. So the right. best you will get is a complete lockup of the government, but the rest of the world's watching. I mean, you got to tell you something. The rest of the world can't figure us out at this point, and neither can I. They're going, what is it wrong with Americans that keep shooting themselves in the foot? So there's so many things we could do to fix the economy if we wanted to do them. But we don't have the leadership, both in the White House, and certainly we have blockage in the Congress. So that if I, to me, if you see a Republican victory in the Senate, it's time to go into Swiss francs. Yeah. And a few other yeah, things, wanna... like in, in shorting, shorting some of the uh, Board of Exchange. Uh, CBO, CBOE has a thing called the VIX Index. I can see shorting that. I, I mean, going with that. I, there's a number of strategies I'm developing that we will implement with the Academy Advised Fund that First Affirmative has in order to protect people's principle. And then we'll hold our breath and see what happens. But my guess is we're, we're, we're coming into an extraordinarily bad phase. And I can't believe it, but not one, not one financial commentator other than me is copy, con, commenting on it right now, which I find amazing. Yeah, I think that it's it's really amazing, actually, because the, the possibility of passing – do you remember the multiple attempts at holding the debt ceiling hostage, essentially where the Congress said we're not going to pay our bills – for money we've already spent, uh, mm-hmm. and it was a you know Tea Party led effort, but it really got so much momentum that they actually the government almost defaulted on its debts for the first time in history. Uh, we got down to the wire on that one, and with with a Senate led by Mitch McConnell and a House continue it's probably going to pick up some seats and continue to be or at least stay with a strong majority, and will continue to be led by uh, well not really led by anyone, and with an, uh, a very hard right wing burn it down type um, caucus and the Tea Party caucus, we're going to see another hostage situation over the debt ceiling, which it's almost inevitable that that's going to happen as a way to, even if they're just doing it to fire up their base, 
this is going to be a bill that, uh, if they do pass a debt ceiling increase, it'll be a bill that Obama will feel like he has to sign, but it will come with all kinds of amendments that will make it almost impossible for him to sign it, I'm sure. Well, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I don't know which way he's going to go on that one. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Um, you know, the problem we've got is that there's total dysfunction at the federal level. So it's, it, that's the whole point, you see, is that I, I can't predict what will happen past this November election. I can predict what will happen. If the Democrats retain the Senate, I can tell you exactly what's going to happen. I feel very comfortable about that. And it's going to be very good, by the way. Uh, if the Democrats lose control of the Senate, it's going to be probably all bets are off. And there's, I certainly cannot see a path forward if Republicans get control of the Senate. So I'm looking at that saying, well, it looks to me like there's a 56% chance it's going to happen. I better start to, you know, preparing a plan. The way I look at it, this is so much like we're, sitting, we're sailing on this big ship, and there's an iceberg dead ahead. And the question is, are we on the ship of state that will veer to the left and avoid the iceberg, or are we on the Titanic? Ship of state means we would be governed, finally, so that, that if the Democrats retain the Senate and the, and, the, and the House remains Republican, we would be still gridlocked, but there would be a chance for compromises on many different issues, because two or three things have gotten through already which were not critical to the Tea Party. And I think, by the way, that would also help the re- traditional Republicans get better control of their own party. Which they're trying to do now by these by resisting primary challenges. So I'm I'm all for the traditional wing of the Republican Party getting control of its party. I don't think that's going to happen in this election, and therefore I'm nervous that the Tea Party's influence is as great now and will probably be greater after the election, particularly if the Republicans Senate get control of the Senate. So that so I, it, it's like it's this black steel curtain I can't see through, and it's so scary. I have to assume that we're the worst and prepare for it. Yeah, so let's talk about the possible uh, implications of that political crisis in detail here uh, on the global economy. You've st- you mentioned some of it in the in the intro here, but I want to go into details about essentially how the U.S. recovery that's that's been slow but continuous has bolstered the U.S. the global economy and what you see it, as a turnaround. What what the implications are? Yeah, and by the way, I'm, I, I saw a statistic that came out yesterday. I'm really pleased with because. It's something I've been talking to periodically on the show every three or four months. You know, you heard a lot about this. The unemployment rate is dropping. It's now down to 5.9%, by the way. And it's amazing. Obama can't even make political capital out of that. We're below 6% ahead of ourselves. It's like 59 is a good number to be at. People forget what it was when Obama took office. Anyway, my point is, and shortly thereafter, my point is this. We gained 240,000 jobs last month. And the August number, which looked like we hadn't gained as much, was revised upward. And and one of the conclusions I finally saw in that report was that the so-called underemployment. So there was a theory that the reason why um, so few people were working relative to the total population, the theory was that people didn't retire to looking for a job, and when the economy started to rebound, they would re-enter the job force and therefore it would continue to put upward pressure on the unemployment rate, meaning more people would be claiming unemployment, right? Yep. The exact opposite happened, which is what I would have expected. What, what the so-called unemployment issue was about, this underemployment issue, is really about the baby boomers, people my age. 
So what was happening is people were getting to be t- every day more and more people were turning 65 plus. And rather than work at McDonald's for $8 an hour, a lot of 65 plusers just hung up their spurs and said, you know what? I'm just going to, you know, some of them are leaving the country, literally going to cheaper jurisdictions where they can live on their on their Social Security. Others have just decided, why keep trying to work? I can't get ahead anyway. Let's see what happens if I don't work. At least enjoy life. So with the enormous age wave that's just starting to crest, it's just beginning to hit us. So the, the full impact of this is still about four or five years away. What you're going to see is a continuing drop in the ratio of total people working to total population, as you would expect, because the ratio of young people to old people has dropped. Now, there'll be a bounce back up in one generation or so, but for the foreseeable future, that's that's what we're going to deal with. Well, now, when you apply that logic, that, that makes the, the 5.9% unemployment rate actually very accurate. It means we are beginning to push the economy close to full unemployment, full employment, but we're not doing it with any meaningful raise in the average person's paycheck, which means inflation's not an issue. Deflation is. And, and, and here's the other thing people have to look at. We cannot continue. The, the International Monetary Fund has said this. Heck, Goldman, Goldman Sachs, Sachs has said this. We cannot continue to create more and more wealth in the 1% and 2% and less and less wealth in the middle. That ratio, that gap, which has gone crazy, has got to start closing. And when I look at that, I say, wow, that's not happening yet, even though Goldman Sachs knows it's critical to make it happen. So what I'm seeing and I'm very nervous about is Republican takeover of the Senate, the gap continues to grow, the spending power isn't there, people are on pins and needles all around the world anyway wondering if we're going to do something crazy again. We do something crazy as a nation, in other words, we elect a Republican Senate, which then locks the entire government up hopelessly for at least two years, and probably creates all kinds of of, um, interesting ways for the government to really, really hurt the economy. And uh, we're now sitting there going, oh, my God, oh, my God. Well, the rest of the world is going to go, oh, my God, they did it again. They're going to start dropping down. The, they're going to say the greenback isn't that reliable after all, because you can't trust the Americans not to do something stupid. They apparently have lost their way. And, you know, it's hard for us to see that about ourselves. But if you think about it, it must have been hard for the Romans to see the end of the empire, too. It must have been hard for all the other 75 or 80 prior empires that existed on the planet to see the fact that their empire was ending. Now, does our empire have to end? In other words, do we have to end this period of prosperity brought on by American economy? No. No, we've got all the tools at our disposal to be able to create a 45 to 5.5% GDP growth here in the U.S. and pull the entire economy of the world with us. We can do that. I'd be delighted to talk about all the ways we can do it. The trouble is that's not what we're doing. What we're doing is we're playing very, very crass political games. We have unlimited amounts of cash coming into the political system, buying elections, basically, for very, very wealthy interests, like the Koch brothers, who don't care about the middle class, who who don't realize that what they're doing is going to undercut their own businesses because the American economy, when it craters again, which it will, that economy is going to be unable to sustain the profits that have been created in the last three, four years since the recession happened. Well, the recession started to slow down about 2011, and corporate profits started going up about then. So we've had three good years, and they forgot what it was like in 2008, 2009, 2010. And that's where we're going to go if we are lucky. 
this time not brought on by a housing boom, this time brought on by the fact that the U.S. government goes catatonic with the House and the Senate Republican and the weak leadership of the Obama administration. Yeah. And you've actually raised fears about a potential deflationary spiral as a result. Can you talk about that a little bit and what deflation means? Yeah, well, look at Japan. They've been going through it for more than 20 years. Uh, Europe is facing a real possibility of deflation. Uh, what it means is that what – let's say um, you're sitting in a chair, right, right now? Mm-hmm. And let's say I said to you, hey, Matt, in a year that chair is going to be cheaper than it is if you buy it today. What will you do? I'd wait. You'd wait. You'd say, well, you know, I've got a chair already. I can make it last another year. I'll wait till the price comes down. Right. So inflation is when expectations turn towards decreasing prices as a, as a likelihood, hmm. and therefore spending decreases, which therefore makes it a self-fulfilling prophecy because with spending decreases, production decreases. As production decreases, people fight harder for sales. As they fight harder for sales, they lower prices, and the deflationary spiral gets going. Uh, and again, Paul Krugman wrote eloquently on, on, on the liquidity trap that creates this. If you go look him up on the web, it's the column he did October 2nd. It's excellent. It's absolutely accurate. He's absolutely right. Well, that that deflationary spiral is very hard to break because your expectation then gets set. Why would you buy something if hanging on to your money is going to make it worth more in two years? And as I say, Japan has had this going on now for over 20 years. In fact, the worst situation is when you have deflation and lowered economic activity. We call that stagflation. And if you notice, that's what we had in the 70s, which caused the eruption in runaway inflation to break out of it. How we broke out of it in the 70s is an interesting comment all by itself. But but the bottom line is, we are now in a low inflation environment. Wages are being held back. Um, you've got <clears throat> some very positive things in that five states uh, are considering direct raises of the minimum wage, apart from the federal government unable to do so. If those pass in all five states, it'll be great for the economy. It'll be so good for the economy because it'll infuse a whole lot of money that can be spent. Uh, right now, you have corporate liquidity at an all-time high, meaning more companies – and both based in the U.S. and multinationals, sitting on more cash than they've ever had in their lifetimes and not willing to invest it. That's the beginning of stagflation. When the consumer, who's been hard-pressed to have enough money to spend, when the consumer believes that they can't get as much for their dollar today as they can tomorrow, and they slow spending further, or because of political chaos, which erupts after the November election, either of those occur, you then have both sides of the equation, consumer spending and corporate liquidity, sitting on the sidelines, and that leads to stagflation. And then another piece of the, the puzzle that you mentioned uh, while we were getting ready for the show is, is the current si- situation with oil prices and how that has global uh, implications. Can you talk a little bit about the West Texas yeah. Intermediate Crude and the Brent yeah, Crude Index? Okay, there, yeah, so there's two prices for oil in the world. One's called West Texas Intermediate which is the price of a barrel of oil delivered to a terminal in Texas, which is ostensibly where West Texas is measured, and the Brent oil, which is basically measured by oil coming from the North Sea. Now, in the case of Brent, 
Brent oil's been up, oh gosh, as high as 122 at one point, and it's back down now to under $100. I think I saw it drop as low as, I know I saw it go below $98 recently. I'm not sure where it landed. West Texas is down around 93. And I've spoken many times on this program about the fact that the spread between Brent and West Texas was too big and that the Brent price would start to come down and more closely approximate West Texas. Why is that so? Because West Texas oil plus the cost of shipping to get it to the Atlantic is really the cost of Brent oil. In other words, you can't, you can't for very long keep a higher price for oil in the North Atlantic if I can get it from Texas and ship it by boat over to the North Atlantic and undercut the North Atlantic price. So the North Atlantic price, which is the Brent price, comes down. Well, it's starting to come down to a normal range. In the process, it's being handicapped because West Texas Intermediate Crude continues to drop in price for two reasons. Number one, the U.S. is about to become the largest oil um, producer in the world. It's quite amazing, actually, because of all the fracking. So what that's doing is putting downward pressure on the price of oil because of the supply. Now, I've, I've spoken to some very intelligent people, including an attorney, or I was in communication with an attorney here in, in, in uh, Santa Barbara, who's a very smart guy, and he mistakenly believes that the reason that we are not pumping oil out of the Middle East is because of all the fracking. Well, it turns out the real reason we stopped pumping before the fracking kicked in from the Middle East, and why we were on a trajectory, as you know from reading our book, Freedom from Middle East Oil, which predicted how to do that. In that book, nine, eight and a half years ago, we predicted that if you raise the CAFE fuel standards, it would, it would give us the ability to, to eliminate all imports of Middle Eastern oil, which it has, has done. So every year, the amount of fuel that an American burns in their vehicle on average per mile is going down. So to give you an example, if you, on, on, a, on an apples-to-apples apples basis, where the same miles get driven in, say, 2014 as were driven in 2010, there's been about a 6 or 7% improvement in, in, in the efficiency of the fleet. That's enormous. That's almost like it's close to 1% a year. So that's just, it's, it's, in fact, it's a little over 1% a year. Um, now, that improvement is a direct result of the fact that the response of Detroit to supply vehicles, even forget about hybrids in the Prius, the Volt, which is just an electric car with an electric motor with a little bit of a, a little gas assist engine in it. Um, when you're looking at uh, the, the low-end cars uh, like the Honda Fit and others that are able to get 40 miles a gallon using conventional engines. You look at things like the, the fuel-injected in, fuel diesels that the Volkswagen's putting into their small cars that are getting 44 miles a gallon on diesel. All of these things are creating a lower average, I mean, excuse me, a higher average mileage, miles per gallon than the American fleet, meaning all the cars in America, we're getting. And as the public has quickly embraced fuel-efficient cars, you've seen the price at the pump come down dramatically. Now, when you add on top of that the downward pressure of all the pumping from fracking, yes, you get an even quicker collapse in those prices. And in fact, there's a tremendous pressure, as you may know, Matt, to begin exporting natural gas and oil from the U.S. because we're making more than we can use. Yeah. Now, I hope that the law does not get changed. I hope the law stays where it is that says you can't frack here, destroy the water table here, inject these incredibly toxic chemicals into the ground here, 
uh, use vast quantities of water, particularly in a state like California, which has got an enormous drought going on that's, I see no end in sight for decades. So when, when all this is going on, you've got people in Tulare, California, literally, who have not been able to take a shower for six weeks because there is no water left in their taps. Can you believe that, Matt? The that's only water they crazy. have in Tulare, California, is what you get in a bottle to drink. Yeah. And you want to take a shower, you've got to drive about 40, 50 miles. So my point is, in a state like that where water is that precious, the last thing you want to do is put tens of millions of gallons of it into a toxic slur- slush and, and inject it into the ground. You also wouldn't want to have all the earthquakes that clearly are demonstrated to be a part of, of uh, fracking. So we know that there is no question anymore geologically, fracking causes earthquakes. Why on earth would you do that in California, which is earthquake prone and, and has an active nuclear power plant sitting on three earthquake faults? So I, right. it's, 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 to me, the whole thing is so crazy, it's hard to put into a thimble. But here's my concise statement. If you look at the price of oil today, the downward pressure on it is inevitable because of the increasing st- uh, efficiency of the fleet, which will only get better every year, number one. Number two, the Republicans take control of the Senate. You're going to have a dramatic downturn in economic activity, and that's going to put further downward pressure on oil. Number three, the greening of America is causing us to ab- abandon increasingly, in favor of renewables, oil-fired and ultimately gas-fired plants. As these factors continue to work their way through the system, as I've said in prior shows, I see oil company stocks as something you sell because it's smart economically. And you can see where the oil company stocks have been dropping every month since I said that. And that will continue. In other words, that's not a reversible trend. So having fracking won't change that trend. Not fracking won't change that trend. That trend is in, is etched in stone and cannot be reversed for all those three reasons. And so the result, that, of course, is Russia and Saudi Arabia yeah. won't have enough excess cash to support their states. That's what I was going to ask next, essentially. The, the states of Russia and Saudi Arabia, the governments there, depend on oil prices over $100 a barrel to sustain their uh, social spending at home. Uh, and then with these downward pressures on oil, you see you, you're predicting destabilization in Russia and Saudi Arabia as a, as a result. Is that right? Well, yeah, I mean, you, you, uh, well, let's take Russia first. Russia, because, number one, they've already got the economy's getting whacked bad by those sanctions and it'll get hurt worse over, over the insanity that, of, of the Ukraine situation. Number two, when you further depress that economy by dropping uh, the price of oil, uh, they're going to have to go to their sovereign wealth funds, or their, their, their savings account, for a while. But their savings account isn't big enough to make up for the difference between oil at $110 a barrel and oil at $90 a barrel. Their savings account isn't that big. So, so Russia is going to be the first country you're going to see where the economic impacts of the price of the oil drop are going to be very severe. Uh, and again, because it's, 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 it's leveraged impact due to the, 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 the sanctions from Ukraine. Number two, the Saudis have an, a massive amount of wealth and, and, and savings. So they're going to be able to readjust for a much longer period of time than the Russians. Same with the Kuwaitis. Um, UAE, I think, can adapt better. Um, it'll be to see what Dubai does. But those countries are all capable of adapting over a longer period of time because they have greater sovereign wealth fortunes to as their savings accounts. However, in the case of Saudi Arabia particularly, where the social spending, the welfare state, is so high, I'm not sure that the pressure to slow the spending won't begin to be felt by the Saudi monarchy within a year. 
And if the Saudi monarchy starts to slow its spending on its welfare state within a year, you have the very real possibility of civil unrest. The reason Russia, Israel, Kuwait, UAE, I notice I said Israel on that list, have all come together to fight ISIS is because the Saudi monarchy understands that once ISIS succeeds in its current form in Iraq and Syria, the next targets are going to be to the north in Saudi Arabia. In fact, they'll go to Saudi Arabia and, and take it on before they'll take on Israel. Israel will be the last one to go because they will want to get their caliphate to grow and contain all those Sunnis that are up there. Now, I, I think that we could bring ISIS to an end, and I've talked about this before in terms of the multi-state solution, and I was delighted that the prime minister of Israel, with whom I very seldom agree, Benjamin Netanyahu, wisely said on a morning show with Fareed Zakaria this Sunday, uh, Netanyahu basically said, it's amazing how we and the Sunni countries have come together to form an alliance, which he would not have thought possible, because it's, it's, it's about a bigger threat than the Palestinian-Israeli threat. ISIS is a bigger threat than that. I would argue climate change is a bigger threat than that. And I would argue that a multi-state solution, meaning one where the Sunnis could see themselves as on the same side as the Israelis, providing for climate remediation work, uh, the formation, as I've talked about, and I've got an article coming out on this fairly soon, on forming a development bank in the Middle East, the pressure to form that development bank is going to come from decreasing oil prices, increasing costs of climate change, and the fact that the Sunnis in the monarchies of the north of the Arabian Peninsula will see they have more in common working with Israel than they do in the common two enemies of ISIS and, of course, the major common enemy, Iran. So, so the, the Shiites in Iran and the southern part of Iraq are the threat that the northern Sunni monarchies are most concerned about together with, of course, this ISIS. Yeah, I think that's very interesting, and we're seeing the alliances shift there. Uh, another big That's another big question mark uh, in my mind, essentially, about where that the Middle East is headed and if this situation in Syria continues to spread uh, and what the, what the essentially, the implications are. It's, it's a very day-to-day -day situation right now, um, but I hope you're right about the possibility of cooperation as a result. Um, one other, another outlier or another factor that we're we're looking at, Ronaldo, is is the Ebola situation. Can you talk about that and how that could affect the global economy? Yeah, well, first of all, it's already affecting it. I mean, uh, take a look at airline stocks today. Uh, I believe that it's only a matter of time when airlines say we're not going to fly a passenger who has been in West Africa and in those three countries, which are Sierra Leone, Liberia and um, Ivory Coast. Uh, I think Nigeria's got the Ebola thing under control. It looks like the new new cases there. So I think Nigeria's actually going to be okay for the time being. Although, of course, it'll get worse as the uh, outbreak gets far worse in, 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 in the three countries I just mentioned, Liberia, Sierra Leone, and, and, and Ivory Coast. But the, the question here, the question that I'm really concerned about is, when you're talking about a million people being affected, infected by the end of January next year. And you're talking about half to two-thirds of those people dying or more. You're talking about such a massive health crisis that the International Monetary Fund just yesterday predicted a $32 billion cost in those countries in West Africa. Now, those countries haven't got $32 billion to lose. 
So what's going to happen is I think this plague of Ebola is going to overrun those three countries. I think you're going to see a million people sick before you see it get better. Um, I hope I'm wrong, and I'm delighted that it's forcing the U.S. military to take a stand to try and build field hospitals, get workers in there, etc. Ebola can be contained if it's really carefully handled. The problem is if you don't handle it, the transmission is so easy from bodily fluids that the the speed with which it's spreading is is geometric. So I'm looking at the $32 billion that the IMF announced yesterday as the cost of this thing is ridiculously low. Because that doesn't allow for the fact that if airlines stop carrying people out of those countries, which I think they should do, frankly, because you're going to have to quarantine those countries off, literally. Because if you don't, you're not going to stop Ebola coming over the world. So I don't know why they're not stopping it, but they, they need to quarantine those three countries immediately. And no one traveling from those countries should be allowed on an airplane traveling anywhere else. That's just sad, but true. Now, yeah, we have very... done that. Now, and Matt, why is that, you think? Well, Congressman Alan Grayson, who's known to, for his being very outspoken and not afraid to go against the grain, has been talking about a travel ban in the U.S. to stop any airplanes coming from West Africa or those those infected countries. Um, what I'm hearing from some experts in the media, although I haven't heard a really great explanation of why that would, could potentially be bad, is that it then makes it harder to get aid workers in and out of the country. Uh, I don't see. I feel like that's a that's a situation that could be dealt with, but that's essentially the logic apparently right now. I think no, there's well, also I, an I, element that's, of that's, that's specious, Matt. Look, when we want to get an, a, someone who's infected with Ebola out of the country, we send a private jet. Right. Absolutely. We want to get aid workers in or out. We can put them on military jets. That, that's silly. No, I don't think any civilian airliner has any business going in and out of those three countries from any country, candidly. Yeah, and, just not, I, I, and the idea of taking the temperature the somebody. Yeah, go ahead. You're taking the temperature when it's a 21-day incubation. It no sense. Yeah, yeah, I, it's it's very strange. Uh, I'm not sure what the why they're waiting, but it it hasn't been explained well from what I've seen, and it might just be uh, fear and the kind of playing it safe that essentially leads to these kind of outbreaks. Frankly, um, but well, I'll continue to monitor that and and see what uh, and you know that, if. It's if Grayson tragic, gets any correction. You know, it's tragic, Matt. That guy, Duncan, um, died today. Uh, yep. The guy who came to Dallas, uh, who tested clean before he got on the plane in Liberia t- by temperature, tested clean when he got on the plane in Brussels, and then flew to the U.S. Now, he had the good sense to go to the emergency room, and if they'd have taken him the first time he went, the, the potential risk to us would have been a lot less. What makes us think the next person's going to have common sense? Well, yeah. how do we? For all we know, that person is going to die in their bedroom. So, so we really cannot afford to not quarantine. I mean, if this were happening in a block down the street, I can assure you, the medical authorities in Santa Barbara would quarantine that block. Well, it just so happens this is a bigger block, but it's got to be quarantined. And I know it's going to create economic hardship for the people there, but frankly, helping them survive is a better problem. Is 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 a better outcome. And what we need to do is quarantine them, treat this like like a massive natural disaster fly in food and supplies from all over the world, just like we did for Haiti, just like we did for Hurricane Haiyan, get aid workers in there from all over the world who are capable of protecting themselves and understand the protocol for how to handle Ebola patients safely, and and just 
convert this whole thing into a massive international medical problem because that's what it is. And the implications economically to the U.S. are far worse than the $32 billion of the IMF because look at the impact on airlines, hotels in Africa, look at the impact on international commerce. It goes on and on. So I think right. if we don't choose to get under control sooner, $32 billion will look like a good number, not a bad one. Yeah, the, and your point about Nigeria is very important. I mean, that's that country is it, one of the most important in, in all of Africa in terms of commerce and its population in Lagos is 21 million, which is just a massive metropolis. It's an, it, almost unimaginably large. Uh, the fact that they got it under control there is very hopeful that with good health practices, this can be contained. So the sooner we actually activate the international health community, the the better. I mean, this has been going on for almost a year now, and it's just now getting global attention because Westerners got sick. Um, I really, um, it's it's tragic, frankly, uh, how badly this was handled, and it, well, and it and gives you know, us, it, Matt, it gives me pause and makes me think that we really need to continue to invest in uh, health programs around the world uh, as a Western, uh, you know, developed countries need to increase health aid in a real sincere way. Yeah, I think that the, 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 the developed countries have to look at what they do with their money, and it's time to stop spending so much on bullets and spend more of it on, on public health and public well-being and clean water, yeah. for sure. But, but, but just here's an interesting thing. I mean, most people don't know this. Okay, Sierra Leone, so dead in the bullseye of the Ebola crisis. The leadership there has had trapped on a dock since August 10th an entire container full of hazmat suits and supplies that were shipped free of charge from the United States, and they won't open the container and use it because nobody paid the $6,000 import tax. Wow. Now, the highest levels of government, right, to the spokesperson for the president of that country, have been asked point blank, why aren't you unloading that container? And by the way, the container did not belong to Direct Relief. I'm very proud of an organization based here in Santa Barbara called Direct Relief, which uh, got a great plug and deserved to from Chelsea Clinton last week because they, Direct Relief, together with the Clinton Initiative, was able to get an entire uh, 747-sized aircraft full of supplies to, um, to uh, Liberia and have it unloaded on the ground safely and return the same day. So these are not supplies from direct relief. Money that you donate to direct relief is not ending up on a dock unused. In fact, all the direct relief supplies are going instantly into use. So they, they're doing a brilliant job. Without a doubt, the leading public health uh, support system in the world right now is direct relief. Uh, I, I could talk about it for hours, but it's an example of a citizen's initiative that knows no boundaries and is doing phenomenal things with Hurricane Haiyan. Now with this, I mean, it's amazing what they get done, including the, this Ebola help. But the, the point I wanted to make is in Sierra Leone, corrupt administration is keeping those supplies on the dock boarded up. If you recall, uh, the, uh, the uh, head of the United Nations, uh, before Ban Ki-moon came in, basically said that the biggest problem in Africa is bad leadership corruption yep. at the top. And what we're seeing is in Sierra Leone, that's true. Uh, Liberia, I think, was trying to get its corruption under control, but was is and was a very corrupt country when this whole Ebola thing started. So what we're seeing is a breakdown that occurs in a nation, if you will, when it has poor governmental structures 
and a massive external challenge. Nigeria, as you noted, is actually the most populous nation in Africa, the source of tremendous wealth. I predicted in the show last month, and I'm going to continue saying this, Nigeria is in deep, deep hot water. Nigeria has got too much corruption at the top. If, it's, if it dodged, and I hope it did dodge the bullet here with Ebola, it won't dodge the next one or the one after it. Nigeria, until it changes its government and gets a government of the people, by the people, and for the people, is in deep, deep permanent trouble. And I think even Shell Oil knows that because they put on the chopping block a whole bunch of their Shell assets over there. Now, I say that because when you look at the implications of the U.S. government becoming as comical as any banana republic you can think of, it is no wonder I'm making the prediction I am about yeah. what will happen with the Republican takeover of the Senate. There is, a, there is a consequence to that kind of perfidy. So, Ronald, I want to pause there and uh, give our listeners a quick note. The World Business Academy is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Our work relies on people like you, the listeners of the show, to join in and help support it. Uh, we have a $25 a month associate membership level that I'd like to encourage you all to sign up for, where you can go to our website at worldbusiness.org and click on Become a Member on the right side of the page. Uh, your support is essential to helping us uh, continue to keep fighting for the safe future for our families and our civilization. And with that, Ronaldo, I want to move on to an important part of our show, the lightning round, where we usually talk about specific asset classes and things our listeners can do with their money to uh, avoid pitfalls and invest in Sunrise Industries. What do you want to talk about in today's lightning round? Well, um, here's a real quick observation. I think I'll touch a little bit on gold in a second, but Matt, I think talking about asset classes in October, when I'm saying the entire U.S. economy could be shot in both feet by mid-November, a month away, to me that's like rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. I mean, yeah. when you hit an iceberg, it's too late to rearrange the deck chairs. It's time to get to a lifeboat. And so I'm very concerned. Uh, I'm so concerned that it's impossible for me to invest in any asset class today because I'd just be selling it within 30 days anyway if the Republicans take control of the Senate. So um, since I'm going to be selling everything that's denominated in U.S., meaning all stocks, if anybody's got any bonds left, all bonds, and the U.S. dollar, I'm going to get rid of all those things uh, in a month. It seems kind of silly to be talking about whether or not you should be buying a new home. Uh, I will say that um, gold, because people have asked me this last week when they've heard of my prediction, they say, well, well, shouldn't we be buying a lot of gold? And I'll probably put a little bit of gold, frankly, into the mix just because the fear factor causes people to buy gold all over the globe. And as we go from a recession into a deeper – from where we are to a deep recession, uh, the price of gold will probably rise a little. But I think in a deflationary – see, gold is a hedge against risk and inflation. So when you've got deflation and risk – it sort of balances each other out, and the stampede to gold won't be as great. Now, it still might be great because of the psychological impact of gold. So that's why I'll be putting some gold into the, into the fund. But I'm, I'm nervous that uh, gold is not going to be the hedge on this round that it would be normally. Uh, I think Swiss francs is a better hedge. Got it. So essentially, By the way, if anybody wants to ask why Swiss francs, if anyone wants to ask why Swiss francs, I'd love to answer that question if they want to call in or you know send us an email. I'd be happy to talk about why Swiss francs as opposed to every other currency in the world, including Chinese. Yeah. Well, 
I think that's a good question, and we, we will hopefully hear from our audience about that. Uh, Ronaldo, one thing, if people do want to write into us about that or any other issue, our email is info, I-N-F-O, at worldbusiness.org. We've been getting a lot of email inquiries about the fund at First Affirmative that you've mentioned a couple times, and if other people are interested in potentially uh, saving, putting some of your money with that fund that the Academy uh, advises, uh, I'm sorry, is, is a, a, yeah, gives advice to and and um, they follow the advice we give on this show, then please do send us an email. Again, that's info at worldbusiness.org. Ronaldo, I think today's show is, is significant in that we are basically saying hold everything and see what happens in November. Are there any other thoughts you want to uh, leave us with here in the last minutes? Well, yeah, I mean, just uh, yesterday the International Monetary Fund raised the question as to whether or not the Eurozone banks are fundamentally unsound. Now, I'm not going to go into all the reasons why they said that, but in their twice-yearly uh, Global Financial Stability Report, uh, they basically talked about uh, the banks in the single-currency area are in deep, conceivable trouble. That's what causes me to think that the U.S. screw-up in the November elections would catalyze a bigger global recession. In other words, if everything was strong and pushing away, and Europe was hardy and healthy, and Latin America was hardy and healthy, and China was going crazy, and Russia was doing fine, and India was doing great. Oh, India's one bright spot on the whole horizon, by the way. But if all those things were going strong, then the U.S. being goofy and electing a Republican Senate might hurt the economy in the U.S. badly, but it wouldn't necessarily trigger the global recession or depression. The problem is everything is so unstable right now and so uncertain and so weak that when you throw a you know, a, you know a hand grenade in the middle of a weak system, it, it just collapses, it shatters. So I'm concerned that the the global financial system being not strong at the moment and being way too top heavy, heavy in favor of the top one or two percent and the global elites, that to me is causing the risk that the U.S. elections could trigger this massive global recession, which could become a depression. But it will be a massive, deep, deep recession. I'm hoping no worse than 2008, but that's an optimistic belief. I think it could be that bad or worse. Probably will be. Wow. Okay, well, on that note, Ronaldo, thank you for your time and for joining us. And to our audience, thank you for joining us. Please do come to our website at worldbusiness.org. And if you would like to get in touch with us, it's info at worldbusiness.org to connect with us in between shows. Tune in next month for the next episode of New Business Paradigms. And until then, thank you for listening, and please do share this link with your family and friends. Thanks, Ronaldo. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Bye now. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.